Welcome back to Owned and Operated, where we dive deep into the businesses we own, the businesses we are acquiring, and we also bring on guests to talk about their operating struggles. If you like what you hear today, follow John and Brandon on Twitter. That's John at Wilson Companies and Brandon at Brandon Niro. Also, check out our weekly newsletter where we teach you how to be an effective operator. You can sign up by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting ownedandoperated.com. That's ownedandoperated.com. Check it out. All right, today we talked to Brandon Lafridge. Brandon has bought a bunch of stuff. He and his wife have bought two businesses, one in property management and one retail furniture store. And on top of that, they invest in real estate. As a property manager, Brandon is at the center of tons of home service companies, roofing, flooring, plumbing, HVAC. Property management involves every trade you can possibly think of which makes for a really interesting hub-and-spoke acquisition strategy that John and Brandon dive into on this episode. Enjoy. If you listen to our show, you know that we can spend months sourcing businesses, talking with them, negotiating LOIs, conducting due diligence, all for a deal to fall through at the finish line. MicroAcquire solves that whole problem, whether you're buying or selling a business. As a seller, you're getting introduced to over 50,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. As a buyer, you get to sort through profitable, vetted sellers and close in 30 days. We don't own any digital businesses yet, but over the next year, we're intending to grab a couple, and MicroRecryer is going to be our choice for a sourcing platform. Okay, welcome back to Owned and Operated. If you're picking up what we're putting down, (laughs) check us out at ownedandoperated.com. Sign up for our newsletter where we go through pretty much all the stuff we're doing, whether it's new articles on the website or pod episodes. And we, I think today, when we're recording this, just launched a private newsletter, which is really cool, where we are giving a weekly financial update on our latest acquisition and then the changes we made. So check it out, sign up for it. It's cool. Today, we have Brandon Laffridge with us. We found out about Brandon Laffridge. Well, I first found you on the Think Like an Owner podcast and then started following Mm -hmm. you on Twitter and... I mean, you've inspired like a ton of people with your pin tweet, and we'll dive into that <laughs> later. But welcome, and we're excited to have you here. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Yeah. How about you start us off with a little bit of a background on you? Sure. Well, I'll start, I guess, with what I do today and then how I got to what I'm doing today. I live in Kansas City, Missouri, married, have a son, five year old son. I run a property management company and invest in apartments. We have about 1,500 units that we manage, and I'm a principal in a number of those myself. Go out and buy apartments, do value-add stuff, stabilized apartments, that sort of thing. We also, my wife and I, own another business that we purchased, and that was kind of sort of the inspiration. It's a little more direct copy of the pin tweet that you referenced on Twitter. It's kind of like in the ballpark of the real numbers on that. She runs that business. It's a high-end home furnishings store that's kind of locally well-known, kind of Martha Stewart of the Midwest type situation is what I always call it. And we bought that business a couple of years ago, bought my business now approaching five years ago. 
but have been kind of doing real estate stuff for about 10 years prior to doing North Terrace, the business that I run or purchasing it. I worked for a private equity firm for a couple of years, not a traditional private equity firm. They're based out of Canada actually. And they were looking to kind of open a shop in the United States. An old business partner and I had developed a relationship with the founder of that firm. And we really did not have the finance industry pedigree to be doing something like that. But we had this sort of operator chops and they were sort of an atypical firm and we were atypical guys to work there. So it was a, it was a good fit for a while. That, was, that actually started at that time. I had moved after graduating college out to California and that partner and I had started a business, which we sold. It was kind of in the online marketing space and it was not a huge outcome, but it was a cool lifestyle business and afforded us the opportunity to look at a bunch of different business opportunities and kind of play with things. And it was sort of sort of supported us while we got to do like a self-guided MBA, if you will. Mm-hmm. The gentleman that founded that private equity firm that I mentioned, he used to kind of spend his summers out in California. And just by happenstance, we, we learned that after like reading an article about this guy and sent him a cold email and then just kind of became instant buddies and sort of went from there. Man, that's really cool. How'd you meet your wife? We've gone to school, went to school together since kindergarten, actually. Oh, really? Then, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then high school sweethearts and went to the University of Missouri together and got married shortly after graduating and then moved out to California for about five years. That's cool. We've got a Zoom group of high school sweethearts here then. Yeah. We should three for three. Yeah, three for three. Yeah, that should become a standard podcast question. <laughs> I, I think it is kind of interesting. There has to be something to say about that because I've like off microphone. I've talked with a lot of the guests that we've had on, and I would say more than fifty percent are high school sweetheart married. Which there has to be. There's something there. I don't know what it is, but there's something there. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm 33 and I have friends who have been expelling just a crazy amount of energy for, I mean, 20 years, I guess, since they were 13 or 14 chasing girls. And uh, I didn't ever expel that energy. Now that sounds horrible. I hope my wife doesn't listen to this, but it was, it was nice to not have that be my number one focus for the last 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, maybe that is what it is where it's a, like a, a focus, just a power of focus thing. There has to be something for stability too. So my wife and I got married. I was 23 and she was 24. So like that's a early time in your life to have. And it sounds like you were about the same, like younger married. So early time in your life to have like sort of one of the biggest decisions you ever make (laughs) sort of out of the way. (laughs) Well, it is. And it is growing up together like that and kind of growing together like that. The decisions that we will individually make without consulting each other, it's to a lot of couples, they would think it was insane. Like, I mean, I don't, you know, talk to her about any properties I'm buying or anything like that. It's just like, hey, next Tuesday, I might need you to sign something. And it's just because we have that, like, I don't know, Almost we're so aligned on one wavelength that it's not even something that we need to discuss. Now, it doesn't, this makes it all sound like we're, it's loveless and there's no communication. It's not that. It's just that we're totally aligned and 
yeah, it's not like we have to argue over things. We kind of are on the same path. Yeah. I think it is the forming each other thing. Cause that's the phrase my wife and I use where we sort of designed each other because we, we got to know each other and we started dating at like 15 or 16 and you sort of create the other person together. I don't know. It, it's, I'm sure you and Ashley did felt the same, same thing. Way. Yeah. I mean, we're yeah. what shoot two months away from the wedding. Yeah. He's, point. he's about to get married. To his <laughs> <high> school. Oh, <laughs> congrats. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, well, that's cool. Okay, so we're going to start making this a standard question. I think that, that, I think that that's pretty There you go. You'll see if there's a pattern over time. It's, <laughs> I really uh, think it's not just anecdotal. I would say 50%. Rand, when you hear this, go backwards and do a poll. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, cool. So that's a pretty interesting background. Interesting private equity background. That's kind of cool. I feel like there's some stuff to dive into there. And then you've obviously been operating property management for a couple of years, the furniture store, the Martha Stewart furniture store. Sounds great. Yeah. I want to visit it now. <laughs> and definitely the real estate ownership side. Which one do you want to tackle first, Brandon? Niro. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I have to ask my super generic question because that's, I feel like where it starts with everything at. Okay. Why real estate? Oh, oh. Like it's super generic, I know, but oh. I think it gets it started. No, no, this is good. Sure. No, I actually, as a, little kid, I wanted to be an architect. So, and I was like, for being, I think it was like third, fourth, fifth grade for being that age was sort of serious about it. I mean, what is, I don't know what that means for a third through fifth grader, but like serious enough that it was like, it stuck for a couple of years. My parents were like, you know, planning activities around it a little bit and like would like, Oh, if we met an architect, it was like, Oh, go sit and talk to him for an hour or something, that kind of thing. But sitting at my desk at school, drawing buildings, that kind of thing. So I always had sort of a love for real estate. And I actually remember this is probably more, a little more controversial when I was little, but I was obsessed with like HGTV shows and stuff like that. So I liked that before it was all, you know, house flipping type stuff. So I've always kind of had an interest in and an appreciation for the physical side of it. And that's where it started from. Then in high school, I had a social studies teacher who's actually now gone on and run for office. And he's like a, I don't know, Missouri state senator or something like that. But he had built a real estate portfolio while he was a history and social studies teacher. And he was probably about... 40 or 45 when I was in high school and he had 15, 20 rentals. And obviously everyone knows generally teachers aren't making a ton of money and it was obvious that he was doing very well. And it was, so I kind of made the very basic conclusion that, wow, this makes a lot of sense. Like this is pretty interesting. And I showed interest in it and I ended up, I became his TA and Every teacher could have two TAs, and I hope I'm, this is past the statute of limitations now. Basically, the other TA did most of the work, and he and I would just talk real estate stuff. Nice. So nice. it was kind of real estate class for me. So he taught me all about it, and he was. I remember he was at that time. I think you could buy a rental with five percent down, and houses around here were also just like so much cheaper, even though it was only you know whatever fifteen, sixteen years ago. I remember he was kind of like, you got to save five grand and then we can buy a house. And so he was always holding me accountable on that. How much have you saved from your part-time job, that sort of thing. And then I just, I took it beyond 
that and got pretty interested in the much more sort of sophisticated side of things and diving in and studying the like actual sort of not institutional well, I probably studied institutional business models. That's not where I play today, of course, but studying how you can scale it up. And it was always really attractive to me that you could have an operating business that was 10 people and it could manage, it could manage $5 million of real estate or $5 billion of real estate potentially. So just that scale that's inherent in real estate was very interesting to me. Yeah. I read, I think that that probably is one of the most, like that last section that is the fascinating thing about real estate. I read a, it was probably a tweet, but it was this guy who was managing, I think almost that example, it was $5 billion of real estate and his team was like eight people. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> and at pretty much, I think every decent sized city has, there's a few families like that, a few companies like that. And it looks very down home, just, you know, like they just locked their way into it and people don't give them enough credit for being as smart as they are to get there. But it's common enough that you can tell that it's, yeah, they probably are fairly smart, but I don't think you have to be a genius to do well in real estate if you can just hang in there for a long time. Yeah. There's a family in our area. We do their we do their plumbing. This is going to be an exaggeration, but I don't think it's a much of one. They own about 30 to 35% of the commercial real estate in Akron, which is insane. Like, yeah. That's insane. And so they're a, I think they're sixth generation now. And what they did, what how they started was they were a grocery store family that like they started their first grocery store. It's Acme is the name of the grocery store. And they started it in like 1850 or something. And every time they built a new grocery store, and now there's like a hundred in our Northeast Ohio, they built a commercial strip mall around that grocery store. And then it's the, you know, the family's, real estate company manages and it's, it's not very many people. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Cause obviously they have a built-in arbitrage because, you know, they can look at it and go, okay, what's triple net rent for a grocery tenant. It's whatever it is. I have no idea. $10 a square foot. And what's debt service on building this whole plaza. Okay. It's this number. Well, we're going to break even just off our grocery store and everything else is gravy. And you add that plus tons of time and it's pretty amazing the outcome. Yeah, it was pretty that's pretty amazing. Okay, so I mean those are good reasons to be, you know, in real estate. We we sort of like we lean towards operating businesses. We have some real estate too, but the outcome versus I'm probably not patient enough. How about that? <laughs> yeah, that's accurate. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess expanding on my answer to that question, the reason that I ended up doing what I did and bought the property management company is I believe there are too many people that convince themselves that real estate is somehow this special asset class that's different from any other business because it's popular or common to read online. Like, okay, you just, you know, it's kind of formulaic. Like you just study an area and you can find, okay, the rent per square foot is too low and all these things. And I think that there are, rare opportunities of good deals, but that's not sustainable to plan to get good deals Mm -hmm. for business to be sustainable. You have to have an edge. I know this is super basic, but there's so many people. In fact, most people, I would say not most people in real estate, but most people that just sort of own apartments don't constantly think about what's my edge. 
you've got to have something, whether it's access to deals or access to financing or access to operating. I guess that's my edge. You can have a few of those edges too, but then there's so many people that come into the market that have no edge whatsoever. And, you know, it's what's the, if you don't know who the dumbest person is in the room is, it's you or that kind of a thing, you know, or I didn't get that off right, but you know what I mean? So it's very obvious that you should have to have an edge, but there's so many people that crowd into real estate and don't have an edge. It creates room for those that do to create a lot of value. So I picked probably, I don't say this, give myself any credit or anything, but I probably picked the hardest possible edge you could have of actually operating them. But to me, it was the most logical because it's the closest thing, and it is an actual sustainable business if you're running it, because whether values are going up or values are going down, there's things to buy, there's nothing to buy, whatever. Somebody's got to run it throughout all of that. They might not have to finance it. They might not have to buy or sell if you're a broker or a commercial mortgage broker or something like that. The transacting is going to go in waves, but you're always going to need to operate it. So I picked the toughest one on purpose. That this, makes sense. It does. And I'm, I'm just going to summarize that. And then I have a couple questions. So, and you said this right before the pod, but you got into property management to, to scale your real estate ownership. Correct. Okay. Okay. I like the edge thing and we might dive back into that later, but I want to sort of touch on this whole, it's sort of an arbitrage, I guess, where you got in, how many properties did you own prior to the management company? Oh, I had like 20 units prior to buying the management company. So not much. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's like a large individual investor probably. Yeah, like a good size side hustle type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then what are you at now? My personal ownership is hundreds of the units we manage. Really? And so what, a lot more. Yeah, that's a lot more. What's the typical property class? B and C. It's sort of not feasible to compete with A stuff being in the areas that we want to be in because we're kind of in like a cool kind of hipstery area in Kansas City that's Westport, the Plaza, if if anybody's listening that's familiar with Kansas City. But so lots of cool old vintage buildings built in the 20s to the 60s for the most part, but some even older. And I have like, to my point about like growing up loving architecture, like it's a lot more fun for me to like focus on buildings that are actually really cool, not sort of boring new stuff. Not that, I mean, the new stuff's great because it's, <laughs> it's nice and doesn't break. But so in that area, it's not really feasible for us to compete on class A because everything that's class A is just, I mean, it's multiples more expensive in terms of like acquisition costs. And typically it's a developer that might have like management in-house. So it's just a bit of a different business model. And then the D D class stuff, if you will, it's honestly, I don't want to get into that just because of how it affects our team. If it's in, I mean, it's an important business. Somebody's got to do, you know, provide the least expensive housing. It's really important, but just coming into our business with the team that we had and then growing the team, if you just start introducing something like that, it's almost a totally different business. It's not just like, oh, you know, this one takes a little bit more oversight. It takes a totally different oversight. So B and C, a lot of like 
kind of workforce housing is the term that you hear a lot, you know, in this area, a lot of people that maybe work in the service industry, or maybe it's their first or second apartment out of college, that kind of thing. And it's trying to be like a really good value in a cool area, but they would prefer to not pay like insane prices just because there's a pool or something like that. And what's the typical building size? Like do you, most people seem to have a sweet spot of building size. Yeah, I mean, our we have everything from some houses, not many, and it's only for clients that have larger properties on up to like our, the largest property we manage is 120 units. But the vast majority are in the sort of eight to 40 unit range. So kind of like six or eight plexes to like shotgun style buildings. That's interesting. I think one of the interesting things about the way you're doing it and the way Chris Powers is doing it. But I think I like yours because it seems to be a lot of internal and like like your private ownership, which is cool. Is is the operating business completely built around scaling something totally different, <laughs> which is cool. My My dad did the same thing where the plumbing business, that was his edge, was free maintenance. So he built his real estate company was actually a lot bigger than the plumbing company. And when I bought it, the plumbing company was the side hustle on the, and it was sort of on the back of the real estate company that he had, you know, sort of just rolled the profits into. And eventually he had like a fairly large for an individual investor yeah, portfolio built on the edge of his own maintenance company going in and being able to do free maintenance and call that training. <laughs> I would say what my model is, is kind of in between that being one end of the spectrum, totally, you know, quote unquote, free maintenance and the end of the spectrum where it's just like I set up a partnership and I charge market rate for everything. And we are kind of in the middle because, you know, neither end, of, neither end of that spectrum would be sustainable for me. I would be kind of eating my edge if I went to the charge full freight end of the spectrum. And if I did it all for free, then I don't have the plumbing side business. So, but in essence, I mean, we've got clients, it's not all for my properties and, you know, it's oftentimes the stuff that I own, especially the stuff that I just own by myself is kind of the bottom of the list. You know, you keep your clients happy first. Mm -hmm. I think property management, I'm sure there's other businesses out there. I just can't think of what they would be. But property management seems like such a good, in a hub and spoke model, property management seems like a really cool hub where you can, you sort of have this base business and you can add a ton of different stuff onto it. Whether it's like buying deals or adding a, you know, adding a plumbing company to the ownership. I have a plumber. Yeah. That's something that we did since I bought it because Here's a question for you. What would you, if I had an apartment building with four units and I said, Hey, I want to add laundry to the units. I need washer boxes and I need you to vent out. What would you charge for? I know there's a million variables, but in general, what would something like that cost? It would probably be 25 to $3,500. So that's about what we were paying per, per unit. You're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. Per unit. Yeah. So that's about what we were paying. And it's kind of funny. This is interesting thing for you to think about. You probably have some guys on staff who are like just super fast, like shockingly fast sometimes. Well, we had one of those guys and we almost started like timing him and we're like, okay, what are we, what are we paying $3,000 for here? This is a lot. And we ended up just hiring that guy. Now we didn't poach him. He had expressed that he was going to leave that company, 
And so now we just pay him like if he worked there, of course, and W2 guy, and we charge our clients 1200 bucks to do the laundry installs. And also we have a plumber on call whenever you know we have issues. So little sort of mini bolt-ons like that are amazing in property management because to your point, like I can see the volume of plumbing, like, hey, we spent $15,000 a month on plumbing last year. Let's hire someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm into that. That Yeah, that's a good idea. And I think, I mean, almost any trade. I never understood why property management companies don't go out and I know they have handymen, but why don't you start a, a handyman or painting company? Because you have to basically turn over like so many units every, you know, you could probably keep a painter busy and you guys probably do, but like every single day you could keep a painter fully running and then bill that through to the client. Yeah. We probably turn 600 plus units a year right now. And we use, a, we use third party painting and internal painting. It kind of depends on the level of work basically, but I mean, same answer anyone would give you right now. It's just the labor issues that everyone in trade related businesses faces. It's just so difficult. Not even like we're willing to pay a lot and it's still hard to find people. So it's not even about trying to get it inexpensively necessarily. It's just about trying to find people period, which is crazy. So that's, that would be the answer today. The answer a couple of years ago would, would maybe be a little different. And I've thought about it, definitely thought about it. And there's actually, there are companies, there's a few companies that really specialize in the sort of turnover or make ready industry, if you can call it an industry. But if you do the math on how many apartments there are, and it's a few thousand bucks every time, it's quite large. I think AO, he's on Twitter. Yes. He does that. Yeah, that is what his business is focused on. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Okay. So I want to go back to the edge thing really quick, just so I understand sort of the fully maximized edge. I would think as a, as a property management company, that would also really help your deal flow. I mean, clients saying, hey, I'm, it's time. Is that a thing that happens? It is a thing that happens. It's something I have to be incredibly careful with for two reasons. One, most of our referrals come from brokers. So you can't be seen as, hey, I'm... Because in in an ideal world for a broker, obviously, they give it to you, you do really well, their client's really happy, you're happy that they referred you business, and then their client sells it on using that broker to somebody and we continue to manage it for the new buyer. That's like the ideal situation. And and maybe that repeats every five years or or less. So you can't be seen as the guy, especially as because I'm definitely oriented a little more towards the never sell into the spectrum than some people. So if it was like, oh, anything you refer to to Brandon, he will end up buying and he will not ever sell. That would be a terrible reputation to have. And you didn't get paid because he just bought direct. So that's one reason you have to be very careful with any sort of like internal dealings like that. Also, you don't want to be seen as like depressing the value so that you can buy it. You know, if it's a property that has performed poorly, there's just built-in conflicts that you have to be really careful about. So I have bought some properties from clients, but the situation was more the client saying, hey, I think I'm going to sell. I'm going to get an evaluation from, you know, the broker that referred me to you originally or something like that. And then I do have that information early in the process. So that can be nice. And I could say something to that broker, hey, whenever you've, 
come up with that number, this is the kind of thing I'm looking for. So that did lead to some deals for me, which in today's market, it's funny, you know, a few years ago, you wouldn't have thought of that as much of an edge, just like knowing about it early because things went on the market and they didn't sell instantly. Well, now it's almost deal flow is so light that just having any deal flow is an edge. So being a little bit earlier, even if it doesn't mean it's a great deal that's below sort of retail, just knowing about it is a nice little edge. Yeah, that's interesting. And I I had never thought of any of those potential conflicts, but I can definitely see those being huge issues. The underperformance thing, I think especially, that'd be yeah, because I mean, tough just, to walk you away have, from. I mean, I don't want to say I have perfect information, but if I wanted to, I could have perfect information on a property. Whereas, you know, most clients are going to buy something, they're going to like think about it pretty hard when they buy it, and then ideally not think about it a ton moving forward. I mean, as bad as that sounds, that's what they're like paying us to do. Meanwhile, I could sit there and become an expert. So if I was selling to somebody, if I, you know, swapped the roles and I had a property manager and they wanted to buy my property, I'd be thinking, hmm, that's interesting. What do they know that I'm not thinking about? I see wheels turning. I'm a little bit nervous over there. watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think that's, I think that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have thought of that. Okay, cool. I thought maybe you were composing an email to your property manager saying, never mind, you can't what buy my hell? property. <laughs> <laughs> no, so our property management, that well, it actually just sort of connects some things for me because our property management, they are a property management company on top of a real estate brokerage, which I think is probably a pretty common pairing. But it's a yeah. very small management company, like 400 units maybe. And... They, and we're like 10, you know, more than 10%. <laughs> <up there. laughs> so, but they've referred us deals that it was their other clients looking to sell and I, and they own real estate too. So I've always just wondered why they didn't do it. And I, I, I get it. I get it. It makes sense. And, could, and they get a commission con- too. Yeah. Could be the conflicts, could be the capital, who knows? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. All right. Okay. So five years that's a long time, I, like for a, for a young for a young man. So, like, what's happened yeah. in the last five years? Like, what what did it look like when you bought it, and what's it look like now? I think we were like eight people in a fifteen hundred square foot office, very roomy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is that? Yeah. There was some storage space, but and now we are about twenty five people in a much bigger office that I've purchased, which is. Nice little, again, sort of hub and spoke situation, owner-occupied real estate. And I'm super involved in the business, but thankfully I'm not, I can be gone for a little bit. It's not quite like exactly where I want it to be of being like, you know, totally comfortable if I wanted to go on a two-week vacation or something like that. I'm definitely plugged in, but I'm not like in the trenches every day. And it's, if I want to go look at a deal or meet with a client or something like that. It's totally comfortable now. So it's sort of graduated up a little bit in terms of on the business versus in the business, I guess, to use a cliche. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. What did the eight people do? Like when you first started? Yeah. Like what did that team look like? Yeah. There was kind of like a receptionist four property managers, a maintenance director and somebody in Bookkeeping, basically. Two people in bookkeeping, I think. I don't know if that adds to eight, but close enough. <laughs> and so we've like made a lot of changes. Like now it used to be that like a property manager did sort of 
everything related to their property, ran the whole business. Now a property manager does a more, a little bit more oversight. And like we have separated leasing out just as an example. And like, I don't know, just small things that come to mind. Like it used to be sort of physical paper bills circulated to every property manager to approve every expense. Now they go through this platform online. It's called Beanworks. It's kind of interesting. It integrates with our property management software, but you get a, you know, a digital bill for approval and you can look at historical bills and it's just a lot more, but less reliant just on a person remembering something versus technology. So lots of just little incremental things like that that have changed over the past few years. Mm-hmm. What's the team look like now? Like, Roughly. Yeah. So roughly now we have, like I said, about 25 people. Some of that staff comes because we have a few on-site offices now. So when I bought the business, the largest property was less than 50 units. And now we've got a couple that are over 50 units and around a hundred, you typically put some people in an office on site. So we have two on-site offices. Oh, three actually. Just bought, went into a new market and <laughs> like a month ago. So we have three small on-site offices. But then the people that are sort of in our main office, which services the properties I was describing, the kind of hipster area, Westport, Kansas City. We've got, what, seven-ish property managers. There's actually a person that manages the property managers. So that was something that was new. Whereas historically that was me or the guy I bought the business from. And he was probably a little bit better at that than I was. Well, he was, I would tell him that managing them, but the best property manager wanted to grow. And so she was promoted to be the director of property management. So obviously that's gone a long way in sort of deflecting some of the day-to-day stuff that I don't really get super excited about because it's kind of on her plate now. And then we have two people, one that's manages the department that are focused on renovations and turns in between residents. We still have a maintenance supervisor. Now he has an assistant. We have four people in bookkeeping, though two of them are part-time. We've got for customer service kind of reps, basically. And that's like tenant calls? Yeah. So that was another one of those things that used to be totally on the property manager. And we're trying to train up more of a front line. And we've even augmented that with some virtual assistants overseas. They kind of handle very specific things. So it's because there's too many variables to, I think they actually could do it, but it takes a long time to get trained up to that level. But trying to get to a point where it's not, you know, 15 phones ringing at once and everybody's answering. So we have those sort of frontline customer service reps. And then thinking if I missed anyone, oh, and then a a couple of leasing agents. An interesting sort of 2020 experiment was a unique thing to us is we have all these, this scattered ownership. And sometimes it can be hard to roll out certain changes because I worry about, you know, maybe what, certain old guard might think of of an idea. Like, for example, like if we were to just start outfitting buildings with Wi-Fi and it was like a amenity that we could charge for, I wouldn't just like do that everywhere and have to like roll out and test it and it'd be a whole project. But that makes things very difficult to have, you know, when we have as many properties as we have and nuances with old buildings. I mean, there's just a lot of variables. Last year though, we, we rolled out touchless or virtual leasing. 
So virtual is not the best word for it, but basically you can do self-guided tours and that's really cool. And so bought 50 of these little lock boxes and there's a whole online booking platform. And it took really took most of this year until May or June to kind of get up to being really significant for us. But now it's, it's hundreds of showings a month and virtually not virtually, excuse me, but no team member from our company is there. The person books it online, goes, checks in basically, and it verifies their location and they can pull a key out and tour the unit and they put the key back in. If they don't kind of do all the steps right, it alerts us. We can go check on it, make sure, you know, whatever, somebody didn't vandalize the property or something. They just forgot to put the key back. But it's amazing because our I did the math when we started doing it and we went from like, okay, if you've got two leasing agents at that time and they'll do showings basically from nine to six, five days a week. And then they had Saturdays. I figured out the number of slots and I think it was like 144 and that's if they were scheduled perfectly, which never happens. This allowed us to go seven days a week, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's like 4,000 slots a week because we have 50 of these lock boxes. And now it's starting to really, I think in June I looked, we, yeah, we had like a couple hundred showings, which is amazing. That is incredible. So I'm thinking about the team and I'm just, I mean, these changes sound really cool. What does growth look like? You, you going virtual and this becoming hundreds of viewings a month, does that allow you to onboard more properties faster? So I don't have this like distilled down into a perfect like deliverable. But what I always talk about is I really want it to feel like we're the Zappos of property management in the markets that we're in. So I'm, I don't use that as a comparison to denote any sort of scale. I don't dream of building a huge, huge company. But like if you are living in Kansas City, it's just like so much better the experience that like you would choose us explicitly even if there was an apartment you liked better somewhere else and we've got you know the service is so good that maybe we have a little more pricing power just and it's worth it to people we're definitely i mean i guess that's going to forever be an evolution we'll never like be there quote unquote but we've definitely got a lot better and some of that's cultural the cultural both internally but also like externally where in the past it was a little more of an adversarial, well, what does the lease say type type of an attitude. And I just don't think that's like a 2021 approach. That's more of a, I don't know, 1991 approach. So we try to go above and beyond and just do, you know, little things as we can. And with old buildings and a million different people and all the variables we have, there's still going to be unhappy people, but just moving that mix more towards incredibly happy people is my goal. And the more we can use technology to have our staff do the things that technology cannot replace, it's just a deeper and deeper edge for us as a property management company. And yeah, I just, I want people to like, if they have a friend moving to town to say, you got to go to North Terrace to rent an apartment. Like I guarantee you, you do not want to live at da da da. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good vision. And I feel like that that would happen too, because apartments there's such a risk of is the landlord like insane? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's a well, tangible luckily, risk. I mean, one of the things that attracted me to this industry was the fact that the that standards are so low, just oh, yeah. so ridiculously low. It's also one of the frustrating things because people kind of like it's it's in a way, but you know they're 
a large percentage of people go to the airport and they're instantly angry. And it's like, okay, you sh- there's no reason to be angry just because you're flying somewhere, but it just puts people in that mood. People just have an issue in their home and it may be big, it may be small, but there's a certain percentage of people that are just like, because something has gone wrong and they pay a lot of money for this place. It's extremely frustrating. Now there's a lot of situations where that's warranted, but anyway, trying to change that sentiment a little bit in our own little corner of things, I guess is the goal. And that was attractive to me because I didn't think you, I mean, you can't do everything. We're not going and changing light bulbs for everybody, but like if we had an elderly person and they can't change light bulbs, we might do it, you know, just those little tenant delights basically. Yeah. I think we've done our best to be good, you know, good landlords. And it is interesting. It is really interesting how low the bar is. Like I've had friends who had landlord situations and I'm like, how is this real? Like, how is this a real, <laughs> how is this a real thing? And I think it happens probably more, on like either side of the spectrum where it's like a mom and pop and they're very dependent on that income source. So then anything that happens to that property, they take very personally or like, is it prestige homes or what's the black, what's the black rock one? It seems I've, I've seen some documentaries and it's not good. (laughs) It's like American rentals or prestige homes or it's something. American homes to rent is one for sure. That's not BlackRock, but yes, they're all kind of different flavors of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Low bar, but it sounds like you guys are going way above it. So on the how growth happens, you went from eight to 25 in five years. That's a bunch. A lot of new people, a lot of new faces. Does most of the growth happen when you're bringing on like a large property or is it a gradual thing? For us, like my best example is we just acquired a company and we probably created two new jobs because our there was such a large step in growth. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's something I struggle with. I'm sure that's not uncommon, but how much I hire for growth or grow because we hired, I don't know if that makes sense, but do it. Do you hire people in anticipating in anticipation of growing or do you take on business and then hire? And I would say I've done both. And I don't think we've had like a, when we might be having this moment now, maybe because we just hired, I was struggling on the number of customer service and leasing people because we just hired some more and they haven't all started. So I was trying to get the like number in two weeks, but we're kind of not over hiring, but I created a new position to manage customer service and leasing. So that's investing in another person. And that's not directly associated with bringing on any clients or anything like that. So, you know, it's like I own the business by myself and that just for a moment feels like you're just taking money out of your monthly check basically, you know, but I think we're kind of at the tipping point of a little bit more hiring for growth or for service as opposed to trying to catch up because we've been pushing everyone to the max. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I don't think we covered how many units they were managing when you first acquired. It was like 700 and we're at 1500 now. And obviously anybody could do the math and say, okay, well, why you're only a little bit more than double and you've got more than double the people Well, some of it's sort of insourcing things. That's a few jobs, like we talked about with the plumber. Well, actually, a lot of it's that, insourcing things. But then also trying to 
scale the people that like, well, the managers basically that interact with all the different constituents because it's a little bit harder to replace them when they've got a client relationship and they've got the resident relationships and all these things, trying to make it a little bit more sustainable to keep them around for a long time as opposed to what had been a fairly high turnover sort of position because it really just burns you out quickly, it can. So making that a little bit more sustainable by taking some of the different, no single thing is that difficult, but if you've got to constantly switch from this complaint to lease an apartment to analyze a bill and, you know, fight with the water company if they made a mistake, like just all these different things, it's really difficult to constantly shift your mind to all those different silos. And it can feel like, you know, the same amount of work could feel like 10 times more work because you just can't ever focus. So trying to create room for that focus basically has led to siloing a bit and creating some new positions. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about your wife's business? Sure. Okay. So I, yeah, we, we preluded this before the show, but yeah. we, we can we can talk as much about it at the business itself as you want. I, I personally want to visit it. It sounds really cool. But I'm super interested in that husband, wife, each one like runs their own business partnership. That is just fascinating to me. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we knew that we wanted to buy a business for her. We had started some businesses together in college and I had then went on and started some businesses, you know, by myself with a partner after college. Basically it got into a point where I was like, I'm not starting things. I'm buying businesses. It's, <laughs> it's too brutal. And so we had decided that we wanted to find a business to buy her. She worked prior to this business for a number of years, I don't know, six or seven, I think for this like textile manufacturer. And interestingly enough, it was owned and operated ding, 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 by a, by a guy who it would basically be like, if you or I bought this fabric company, he was a, a guy who just wanted to buy a business, run it, grow it, and was sort of agnostic as to the industry. They made this specific type of fabric that was made in Bali and used in quilting. So their niche was like independent quilt retailers. So not something that this 35 year old guy had any previous history or interest in. So between me doing it, and her working at a place where a guy did it for a number of years, she was very interested. Now she wasn't maybe as much, she didn't have as much flexibility on like, I couldn't see her buying a plumbing business, for instance. She'd want to like have more personal passion for the exact industry. So we moved back to Kansas City and both brought our jobs here in 2014. And for fun, because we both were working from home at that time, she got a job on Saturday mornings working at this little tea shop just as a way to you know interact with some people because we were both at home. And it's kind of weird moving back home after you've been gone for 10 years, your kind of close friends are gone. So I don't know what started the conversation, but somehow we went down the path of she was going to buy the tea business. We ended up kind of just disagreeing on valuation, of course. Like you and your wife or... Your wife and the owner of this us and, us and the owner. Okay. All right. I was like, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. We didn't just, well, no, we were very much in agreement that the valuation expectation was way too high. It was like a classic sort of like discretionary earnings times and EBITDA multiple that was irrelevant and 
very asset light and just, you know, probably off by a factor of three type of thing. Mm-hmm. Even that'd be given a generous valuation to what would be reasonable to pay. But had a serious discussion and had spent enough time thinking about her doing that, that she, when it even became real of, hey, maybe we'll do this with this business, she was more excited about it. So then we, I just had my eyes peeled. She kept her job, never left that job to consider buying that other business. And I had a call with a business broker in Kansas City and I had called him about an HVAC business for sale. This is after I'd already bought North Terrace. And I thought it was your traditional sort of HVAC contractor that you see around. And it turned out it was not. It was more of a mechanical contracting firm, you know, doing like giant cooling towers on factories and things like that. And zero sort of like overlap or synergies with my real estate business, which that was the premise. Hey, maybe we'd there would be an interesting consumer side and I could buy this and, you know, sort of get the HVAC for myself for free sort of thing. It was not that. And at the end of that conversation though, he was just intrigued by, you know, talking to me, buying a business, sourcing it direct was interesting because North Terrace, I had sourced direct from the owner. And he had, he had asked if I would ever consider buying another business. And I said, yeah, but it's got to be either synergistic with real estate stuff, which is, you know, why I thought I was calling you, but I'm not, you know, whatever it wasn't. And, or just like sort of a legendary, super cool, fun, local, permanent type thing. And I gave him this example of this coffee shop that is really well known here, a little chain as an example of that sort of thing. And I I might've even told him that an old business partner and I always joked about the I think it's the Napa Valley wine train. (laughs) It was an actual business that was for sale like 10 years ago. And you're like a privately owned train and you go from vineyard to vineyard. And they're like, that's like a legendary cool business that would technology's never been displaced. So I said, it'd have to be one of those two things. And he was in the early stages of bringing the business that we ultimately bought to market kind of putting together the SIM and getting all the diligence materials kind of loaded into a room. And, you know, basically he, he thought that we sounded like we could be sort of interesting for that business other than the fact that he didn't think we could like actually pull off financing it. Nice. Yeah. So that was January of 2018 and we ultimately ended up closing on that business in December 28th of 2018. So it took a full year from the first conversation to closing table. That is cool. People like different businesses for different reasons. That's where I'm going to start with this one. And so my sister and I, she and I own our real estate together. I think she listens to the pod. Hey, Anna, what's up? But she wants to buy a business and she wants a lot of like what you just described Whereas for me, I'm like, if it's brown, it's green. Like that's the plumbing, <laughs> right? So I, anything that cash flows, I'll do it. I don't care. But she wants like that local, like cool staple. And yeah, it sounds like you guys found that. That's really cool. That that something that hyper specific yielded results. Yeah, I mean, it was it was not because there was a lot of foresight, though. So don't like give us any credit. It was just, I mean, I guess the only foresight was just knowing that I wanted to be in one of those two camps. But yeah, no, it was very unique. We actually one time tried to make a list of things that we felt like would be more interesting or more fun or 
cooler for us to have purchased and we like couldn't think of anything. Mm-hmm. So that was a good exercise to make us feel good about the decision. Yeah. So how do you different because you're married, but in, I guess I don't know which order this episode's coming out, but we just talked to Peter Lohman and he has a 50% partner and they own two businesses together and some real estate and one runs one and one runs the other. And that reminds me a lot of you guys, except you guys happen to be married. How do you guys mm-hmm. handle the, as a married couple and like partners, how do you manage the sort of co-CEO? Do you guys ever talk about any anything business or is it like you do yours, I'm going to do mine? Or Yeah, but it's not like we have oversight over one another or we're accountable for one another for our day-to-day decisions. Now, obviously, if I just like came home and said, I, I closed the business down today and I, whatever, you know, some crazy thing that's like, you know, sort of marital level accountability. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like professional accountability, we don't really have that sort of relationship where, you know, like we've got our little family board of directors or something like that. It's more just, hey, I've got this situation and I've talked to you about, you know, this kind of a thing with, you know, this department before, do you have any ideas or whatever? And it's funny because both of our businesses, we've kind of got like the same, like the same four or five personalities that we interact with both. So we'll be like, oh, your Bob is my Sally, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, then it's like, we've got, we both feel like we have insights because they're so similar. And it's like, they're all great people. It's just like, okay, you know, Bob and Sally need more like direct feedback when like immediately when you're unhappy with some decision they made versus, you know, whatever, I'm not going to come up with all these fake names, but the next personality type, it's like, no, you got to like save that for a review or it's going to like set them off potentially. So I would say it's the day-to-day sort of management stuff that we get the most value out of sharing. I probably meddle a little bit more in her business than she does in mine, just because it's like more fun and more interesting. And, you know, on a, on a day-to-day level, it's more interesting. And I like coming up with like marketing ideas and things like that for her business. Like we're about to start basically everyone that buys a house above a certain value is getting like this little care package delivered in the whole like metro area. It's like somewhat, elaborate and that was fun i like figured out okay we get the data from redfin here's how you can scrape it actually with somebody i met off twitter he kind of like turned me on how to get it but just like i kind of do little projects like that here and there but nothing that's more than 15 minutes of work at a time to be honest Mm -hmm. do you guys share like best practices or kpis or like hey this or I mean, and is there reporting? I'm sorry, this is, re- it's probably not that interesting to you, but this is really <laughs> fascinating to me. Just the the whole, like, it's like taking two very different relationships and smashing them together. And that would be uniquely challenging, I think. There isn't any reporting now. We used to go, before COVID, we would go to breakfast every Thursday morning and like drop our kid off at school and then go to breakfast for like two hours and kind of like talk about stuff. And she was really good about like taking notes and following up on, okay, we said this, the last meeting, we're going to do this thing and have this tough conversation, that sort of thing. We haven't been doing that as 
like regularly scheduled since we stopped going physically to breakfast. But that's kind of like on the near term list. I would love to treat it a little more. When actually, I think we, we did. So we send each other calendar invites for stuff constantly, like for work related things. And I think we, we did block off, I think it's this Friday, to do a deep dive into financial review, basically, since we're at the end of the first two quarters of the year. So no, there's no official like reporting requirements, although I could see us doing that just because it would be a lot easier to like take the, you know, bookkeeping people and tax people and whatever at every business and just say like, hey, send us these things by this date because we're going to have a meeting, you know. Yeah, this is really interesting. Bridget's probably going to go buy a business now. <laughs> so Bridget works inside our shared services company with me. And that's my wife. And she helps a ton with basically whatever active project we're working on. A lot of acquisition stuff, all the new content stuff we're doing. She's been a big part of really all of it. But it would be, she's talked about buying something on her own. And the dynamic is always like, like I'm super supportive. I think that's really cool. It's just I, I wonder how that changes, you know, I don't know, the relationship. <laughs> I do think of, you know, like everything we do is just like the business of the two of us. Yeah. So yeah. we don't have a literal holding company that brings it all together, but that's kind of the way I think about it and that we just run it together. And But, you know, 98% of the time that just means I run my business and she runs her business and 2% of the time we like think about the big picture together. Hmm. So. I would say she should buy a business inside of your umbrella. Don't fight it. But I think so. But then the danger, see, the danger is then I become, she reports to me, which that would be bad for us anyways, <laughs> for our marriage. That would not be probably a good thing. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can draw whatever you want on org chart, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If a line's in green, it means it's fake or something. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that, man, this has been this has been great. I really appreciate you diving into the property management and the partnership with your wife. I think that's cool. We're definitely going to do a poll on all the previous folks. I'm going to bet sixty percent. That's my bet. What do you think? <laughs> then, well, I think that's. I mean, I have nothing to go off of. The thing I would say would be really interesting. I'm sure this data exists. Find out what percentage of just Americans in general are married to their high school sweetheart, so you can see the contrast there nice what's that a control group yeah just so you can see like okay i'm selecting what i believe to be you know the you know 10 percent most successful or whatever you want to say that your theme is of everybody you're selecting and then if it's 10 times higher you know six percent and 60 percent or something i'm into this all right all right rand's gonna pull out the books here (laughs) yeah rand's gonna pull out the books okay brand you got anything else i guess so i have I'm a generic question today, apparently. For someone listening to this who's non-real estate or is looking to get into real estate, you've now hyped them up on the concept of it. What's advice? What's the advice or the one rule you give them or something like that for getting into the first property? You're going to have to pay retail. I would say just go buy something before. I don't mean that like be rash and stupid, but buy something that's decent at full price as opposed to trying to find some needle in a haystack, that's especially relevant right now in the last year or two when things have just gone nuts. But sort of getting in the game is more important 
than analyzing it forever. And okay, let's say you find a deal, but it takes you five years. You could have just bought that first property and you'd have so much more experience and you'd end up in the same place, but you would have gotten paid to learn basically. I always recommend that people self-manage their properties until it's just not possible to do it for one reason or another. And I even people that call and like want to be a client, that's what I say. Hey, have you ever self-managed because you have so much more appreciation for what your property manager does for you. And I guess it's not just so that they appreciate us that I say that, but some of the stories you hear from your property manager are just like unbelievable unless you've done it yourself and you only have to do it for a short period of time to get some unbelievable stories. So definitely plan to self-manage anyone that's willing. I would do, you know, the house hacking concept and that goes like the first two ideas of just sort of paying up and self-managing that dovetails perfectly into those two things because you can get amazing financing, obviously, with an FHA loan. So just you only need three, four, five percent down if you get an FHA loan. So go buy duplex, triplex, fourplex. Naturally, it would be silly to hire someone else to manage that. You live next door. The dynamic of living at your own property, I don't feel like is that big of a deal. People sometimes act like it'd be really annoying. It's your residents probably don't want to talk to you. So it's not like they're suddenly going to be knocking on your door at 2am just for fun. Yeah. So I think that'd kind of be the big things. And then maybe one more thought that just popped into my head. If you are, think you're past all of those things, or if it was somebody that maybe that's more financially sophisticated and they're like, okay, look, I'm like not being pompous, but they say, Hey, I'm sort of above these single family, this piddly stuff, whatever. Just go bet and invest with somebody who's really good at doing it. And I'm not saying that's me or like trying to angle for that in any way, but odds are whatever sort of fees you pay them probably make up for what you could potentially lose and just going to do it yourself. Or even if you have the means to go out and do some deals, you should just do, you can do such bite-sized chunks now. I, I mean, I can't like personally recommend any crowdfunding sites. I've never used them, but I think that there's some good options when you can put like a few thousand dollars into a deal and then you can use that as some credibility. Even if it's like, I mean, honestly, I only put $30,000 over a few years into some deals. You can say, Hey, I was an owner in hundreds of units and now you understand the operations and when you go, you come from California to Kansas City to buy something here, you're not just a guy from California, you've got this experience and, you know, sort of bought that experience and but you make money doing it versus I do see people that have not ever operated any real estate other than maybe their home and they've done well because they live in an expensive place on their home and they come and they buy a, you know, $3 million apartment building. And it's just, they are trying to reinvent the whole system before they've even learned how it generally works. I like all those rules. Yeah. If I could do it again, I would have, as in like pre-marriage, I think married with kids, it's a little bit harder to house hack. Like I applaud anyone that does it but that ain't for me. (laughs) Yeah. I have a friend here locally who did that and he did it in not for the FHA alone reason because it was a bigger place, but there was some state owner occupied real estate thing. And then they consider part of that category. If you just built like amazing penthouse, it still was there as Ben first. 
All right, Brandon, thanks so much for coming on today. This was awesome. People want to connect with you. Where can they find you? Thanks for having me. It was fun. Twitter, fairly active on Twitter. It's at Lawfridge, L-A-U-G-H-R-I-D-G-E. Can send me an email, Brandon at NorthTerracePM.com as well. Sweet. All right. Yeah, this was awesome. All right. If you like what you're, if you want to pick up what we're putting down, check out ownedandoperated.com. We have a variety of content now between articles, operating essays, and a couple different newsletters. Check it out and make sure to give us a five-star wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.